0: to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. You can find this and other episodes like it on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Stitcher, and you can help support the podcast through Patreon. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change, a time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform a time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's conversational corner covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War this episode's topic, the Gilded Democrat. If he is remembered at all, it is as the only president to win two non-consecutive terms in office, or perhaps as the only democratic president to win the White House between the rise of Abraham Lincoln in 1860 and the emergence of Woodrow Wilson in 1912. But although Grover Cleveland seems barely a historical footnote to, to many, in his time, he made an indelible stamp on the issues troubling the American people during the turbulent Gilded Age. How did he do this? Why did he govern the way he did, often in the face of opposition from his own party? Why was his leg- legacy so ignominia- ignominiously discarded soon after he left office? And what can we learn from his efforts today? With me to discuss these questions and more is Troy Senek, author of Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Troy, welcome.
1: Avi, it's a delight to be with you.
0: Pleasure's all mine. So uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, you have about uh, five minutes to give an elevator pitch to a friend or an acquaintance who is interested in the life of Grover Cleveland. Who was he before he ran for president?
1: I mean, the answer to that question is he was quite an anonymous figure, Um, I always think the most interesting place to locate Grover Cleveland is in the year 1881, which is the year that he would have turned 44 years old. The reason that 1881 is significant is when you find Grover Cleveland in that year, you will find him in private practice in Buffalo, New York, where he lived for most of his adult life. And in 1881, he is a highly regarded lawyer, but not a celebrity lawyer by the standards of the day, not somebody who was known as one of the first citizens of Buffalo. The only previous experience he had had in elected office was a two-year stint as the sheriff in Erie County, New York, where Buffalo is located, and that's about a decade prior to what we're talking about in 1881. Why does any of this matter? Because by 1884, this relatively obscure Buffalo lawyer is going to be the 22nd president of the United States the ascent that he has is vertiginous i mean it's just incredible the speed at which this happened so he's elected mayor of buffalo in 1881 he's elected governor of new york in 1882 and then he's elected the presidency in 1884 and as cleveland himself uh, noted in a reflection on his inauguration for the first time around he couldn't get out of his head the thought that james garfield the last president to be uh, elected there had been a president obviously in the interim because Garfield was assassinated but the, the president inaugurated 4 years before him would have taken his oath of office not having a clue who Grover Cleveland was and that is a testament to how rapid this ascent was and i'm sure we'll talk more about this but this ascent is really fueled by Grover Cleveland's character and the way it interacts with elected office in this era in american history and how much of a contrast he is with the the dominant strains of politics in this era in American history.
0: It's great that you bring up his character, and I'm sure that we'll bring uh, we'll discuss it further down the line because it uh, it plays a part in pretty much everything he did in public life. Uh, but I wanted to ask: Grover Cleveland runs and remains a lifelong Democrat, not a Republican, throughout our entire period, and I wanted to know how exactly he came to that, and I asked for uh, three reasons. One is that, as you describe, his father and perhaps his general upbringing sounds very waspish, very uh, character building, much closer to the Whig party than the Democrats uh, of, of, say, Andrew Jackson's age. Second of all, it's not like, for instance, he grew up uh, I mean, he mostly grew up in New York, which was a massive swing state. You could have gone either way politically. It's not like in uh, places, some states in the Midwest where you're naturally a Republican, or some states in the South where you're naturally a Democrat. It was, you know, you could have uh, done either. Uh, could have uh, decided to become a member of either party. And perhaps last but not least, uh, you mentioned in the book that he was an admirer of Andrew Jackson. But in terms of temperament and how he governed, I cannot imagine two stridently different ways of governing and uh, appealing to the people or not appealing to the people and thinking in terms of constitutional limits. So given all that, how does he nevertheless find himself uh, being a member of the Democratic Party and ultimately leading it?
1: Well, you're really right about that. I mean, particularly the the Andrew Jackson piece that you bring up towards the end, because I mentioned it a, a few times in the book that he does invoke Jackson from time to time as this kind of touchstone for himself. And it is such a strange contrast. It would be as if you know a politician told you that they, they really modeled themselves after Donald Trump, they really admired him, but then they went and behaved in office like a Mitch Daniels. I mean, there's just there couldn't be more of a contrast in the temperament. Um, this is a really good question that you ask, and it is probably one of the biggest questions that I get from the book because it is not addressed in the book. And the reason it's not addressed in the book is because we don't really know the answer to this. Uh, Grover Cleveland is not a deeply introspective person, and this is one of the difficulties of writing a a biography about him, is that he is not giving you a lot of first-person testimony to what's going on in his head. He gives you lots and lots and lots of detail about what he's doing professionally, but you don't get these sort of long, revelatory um, chronicles of, of how he is thinking about things. So the best I can offer you is an educated guess, but I will offer you my educated guess, which is that for Grover Cleveland, uh, as I think for a lot of people, it's hard to find the line, uh, I think, between uh, ideology and biography and, and try to figure out wh- which way the causation runs. So I say all of this because... Grover Cleveland is from a very young age, I mean, back to the very first thing that we have in his hand, which is a a sampling of schoolwork when he's an elementary school age kid. He has this very sort of, uh, we would call it now, kind of a a Puritan sensibility about, there's a deep, deep commitment to making the most of your time, to being productive. He's He's a workaholic throughout his career. And there's a kind of, his father was a Presbyterian minister. There's a kind of piousness to all of this too. And my best guess is that the sense of self-reliance that you see throughout Cleveland's life, it's very, very important to him to always be putting in all the work himself. He's very, in in many ways, this comes back to bite him when he's president. He has a very hard time delegating. He really thinks that individual responsibility uh, is is maybe the prime virtue to be had in American life. And I get a sense that the extent to which that was part of the mantra of the Democratic Party, this idea that limited government was important partially because it was important for people to take responsibility for themselves, was a big part of what got him there. Uh, Again, this this is only speculation because he doesn't tell us. But that seems to me to be the place where you see the character of the party and the character of the man in the closest alignment. So I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that that was at least part of the rationale for why Grover Cleveland ends up becoming a Democrat.
0: That's a pretty good educated guess. And I think it's supported by the material that you bring in your biography. Speaking of, um, one thing I wondered about, well, you mentioned how he speaks sometimes about how. Both, at least during his presidency, about how America was changing, and it struck me that, at least traditionally, this would this was slowly changing, including during his time. But at least traditionally, the Democratic Party was the party of the farmer, the rural American. Uh, famously, uh, Jefferson uh, they hark harked back to Jefferson, who spoke of an America based almost exclusively on yeoman farmers and uh, and artisans, and not people living in the city. And yet again, there's this contrast because Cleveland was very much a man of the city. He made his name first and foremost as a guy fighting uh, to ensure proper uh, public spending in Buffalo, New York, which was a massive boom town. And uh, in both his terms, uh, cities started to boom and rise and it caused a lot of social anxiety among a lot of people. How did Cleveland view this change. Did he think that it was only bad, or did he think that it would also had potential for good, seeing as he himself had administered uh, good public works and changes uh, in his city?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting when you see uh, Cleveland as as mayor of Buffalo, in particular. There's a little bit of a parallel to be made here with uh, Calvin Coolidge, insofar as Coolidge's legacy as one would expect, is usually remembered primarily in terms of his his presidency, where it's a pretty hands-off laissez-faire presidency, uh, like Cleveland's in a lot of respects. But when you look at Coolidge in in lower office, he's actually uh, much more engaged, uh, much more proactive on policy issues. And Cleveland is a little bit like this. When he's mayor of Buffalo, for instance, one of the the big accomplishments that comes out of his administration is the construction of sort of a a modern – Uh, sewage system for the city of Buffalo. Seems prosaic now, but when you're talking about this era in American history, the implications of having inadequate sanitation in a major urban center as Buffalo was then uh, are are really profound. I mean, this has incredibly important implications for public health in the community. So you do see Cleveland, I mean, he is not not a backwards-looking figure in the sense that even coming out of a party with that more agrarian tradition. He is, in his capacity as the chief executive of a major urban area, he's thinking seriously about urban issues, you know? So there, there was a, that sort of forward-looking um, quality to him. In terms of sort of the broader issues that you raise, one of the things that's sort of interesting about Cleveland, I mentioned in the book that I, I think it's a mistake, even though today... Uh, despite the fact that he was a Democrat, he is most fondly remembered by certain stripes of conservatives and libertarians because he has this all these limited government fides. I think it's always a mistake to entirely just reverse engineer modern uh, ideological alignments into the past, especially this far into the past. And, and the reason I bring this up is because Cleveland, while he believed in a very light touch on economic matters, this was a guy, as you mentioned, who cared a lot about the government staying within its means in terms of spending. I mean, talks about it in terms that would be resonant with how some modern libertarians talk about it, the the, the idea that when the government spends beyond what it absolute, the bare minimum of what it needs to spend, it's, it's tantamount to taxation. So you read things like that, and you assume that this guy's just down the line a fiscal conservative in the same way that a fiscal conservative in 2010 would be. But there is this anxiety in him, and you see it expressed several times throughout his presidency that as the country is changing, uh, as it is industrializing, as you are seeing more corporate power than you had in the past, Cleveland is very tentative and worried about the concentration of power in in corporate America. Now, the way he thinks about it is still sort of more of what today we— think of as a limited government or libertarian anxiety which is that he identifies most of the problems here as stemming from the collusion between government and private business but he did have some unease the, and this is what kind of anchors him more to that uh, tradition in the democratic party he did have some anxiety that the ordinary working american was going to be exploited by these Powerful financial forces, but again, really locates the primary danger in the interaction and the collusion of those forces with the forces of government.
0: Speaking of collusion, or at least perceived collusion, uh, one of the major themes that runs throughout the uh, the entire book is that uh, Grover Cleveland was very much a man of his region, uh, the Northeast, famously. Uh, whether you were a Republican or whether you were a Democrat, you were what was called a hard money man. You were in favor of the uh, the gold standard. Uh, even mentioning uh, basing money on silver made you shudder. Uh, and I wonder uh, whether or not was this another issue where Cleveland carefully studied the issues, or did he just absorb those views by osmosis? And I also noticed that he made a special effort of making of arguing that the gold standard was not, at least he believed that way, that the gold standard was not just about protecting the profits of major industrialists or major businessmen or bankers, but it was about making sure that the ordinary American worker or farmer, uh, that their dollar after they earned it went as far as when they earned it.
1: That's right. And, And to answer your question on this as to whether it's a matter of disposition or a matter of study, I think it's probably both. Um, Your question suggests a theme that is repeated throughout the book, which is that Cleveland is distinctive for how deeply he studies everything. Um, He is a lawyer by training. He is a lawyer by temperament. So when he is confronted with an issue that he hasn't previously given much thought to – and this includes a lot of economic issues he faced during his presidency that wouldn't have been ripe for his attention as mayor or governor – He hits the books and he gets deep into an issue. But you made the important point there, which is that Cleveland uh, does not – his arguments about the gold standard are anchored just as much in appeals to the welfare of the common man as they are to the welfare of – I mean, he would never have specifically singled out sort of financial elites, but you can imagine somebody making an argument about – the broader health of the entire American economic system, which he did. But I think it's important to understand him as a lawyer, because this is a central part, I think, of how he thinks about the the monetary issue, which is that if you are talking, as people were, as his fellow Democrats were, about sort of changing the composition of the American monetary system, bringing in these infusions of silver, the intent of which, is to, in large measure, to inflate away some of the debts that are burdening particularly Democratic constituents in the West and the South. Cleveland could not get his head around this partially because as a lawyer, he is thinking about this all in terms of the sanctity of contract. And if you are upending the entire system, if you are changing the denomination uh, of these debts, you are changing the terms, of contracts throughout the entire nation, I mean, today nobody would think and talk about this issue this way outside of some sort of arch libertarian camps. You know, that you certainly would not expect a politician to think about it this way. But Cleveland's a little weird. I mean, even in his own day, in that he rarely thinks like a politician, as, as I say throughout the book. And this comes back to bite him in many ways. Even though it's a central part of his appeal, he has a judicial temperament. You could see him much more naturally as a judge than as an elected executive, because he is always sort of floating above the fray, trying to suss out what's the correct first principle here. He is not, to contrast him with another president, he, he is not Lyndon Johnson. He is the anti-Lyndon Johnson. This is not a guy who is going and trying to twist arms and manipulate factions and horse trade. He's trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. And on this monetary question, that's what it comes down to. I can't change the rules of the game in the middle of the game. That's really central to how he thinks about it.
0: Speaking of uh, thinking like a lawyer and thinking of rules of the game and the first principles and what you can and can't do within them, um, it's mentioned briefly in the, in the book, but I, I thought it worth perhaps delving into a little bit deeper. Uh, you note that in the biography that Cleveland very much, at least rhetorically, recognized the fact that the Reconstruction Amendments had not only ended slavery but had recognized Black Americans as full citizens of the United States, and yet, when uh, after he was defeated by Benjamin Harrison uh, in 1888, the Harrison administration, with United Government Republicans controlling both houses of Congress, uh, tried to pass a flurry of bills, and one of those bills uh, was really the last gasp, in retrospect. Of the attempt to ensure and secure black voting rights until, like you mentioned, Eisenhower and then and then slowly but surely into Lyndon Johnson, uh, to ensure to secure black American voting rights, and yet he fulminates against the bill at, along with his fellow Democrats as a force bill.
1: Why he does this is sort of, I think, the central tragedy of of Grover Cleveland, and it's it's weird because this creates an opportunity for a lot of historians to criticize him and and weirdly even this serious defect of his is usually sort of ignored, which I find kind of strange. Cleveland poses an equilibrium on this issue that is very difficult to understand from a modern perspective. I'll try to explain it as best I can. Grover Cleveland is actually to a degree unpopular within the Democratic Party because of his, mostly expressed in his personal life and not his career, but because of his attitudes on race. As, as I mentioned in the book, when Cleveland gets up and gives his first inaugural, because remember, this is the first Democrat elected president after the Civil War, there is this tremendous anxiety, uh, especially amongst free blacks this, in the South, this idea that, well, Democrats back in the White House, we don't know that our liberty is safe. There are rumors, you know, slavery is coming back. And Cleveland goes out of his way in a striking contrast to James Buchanan's inaugural address, which essentially pre-endorsed the Dred Scott decision to say, black citizenship is a fact of American life. Black Americans do not have to worry about this. And you see expressions of this in his personal life. The fact that Frederick Douglass was a, a regular guest at the White House, Cleveland was friendly with him and his white wife, which incensed Democrats even more. He took a lot of heat for this. Nevertheless, when it comes to actual material public policy, he falls down on this question over and over again. And what is so interesting about it, and I think an area in which his kind of systematic lawyerly mind really fails him, uh, there is no record whatsoever to suggest, and nothing in his personal behavior to suggest that he was sort of sandbagging on this and that he was perfectly fine with this equilibrium and was content to see blacks in the South deprived of their right to vote. What you see is Cleveland unable to get his head around the fact that he, he thinks of this primarily as a constitutional issue, right? What the Republicans are trying to do here goes beyond the proper limits for the federal government. The federal government cannot interfere with these states in order to accomplish this. And he visits the South during his first term and tells Southern audiences, this is something that is for you to solve. And tells them, essentially, I'm confident that you will solve it, which, of course, he was totally wrong about. So it is something for which we don't have any ready analogy because there doesn't seem to be anything about him that was driven by actual racial animus. I mean, he was not a racial egalitarian in the way that we would think of it today. He, he did think of minority groups, whether it was African-Americans, Native Americans, Asian immigrants, he did think of them as as lacking, um, not in some sort of metaphysical sense, but just because he judged all these groups by the extent to which they had assimilated to mainstream American society. So when he's thinking about African Americans, for instance, he's really pushing education. We have to get them up to where white Americans are. But it's just this total blind spot for him because he thinks of it in such legalistic terms. The Constitution puts these boundaries around this question. It can only be solved at the state level. So it was just totally improper for the federal government to interfere on this. And, and we see, uh, he obviously was not entirely responsible for this, but we see you know, the contribution that made to the terrible set of circumstances that, as you say, African Americans lived with until the middle of the 20th century.
0: Speaking of uh, another group that was emerging in this period uh, and was becoming a a question for serious dilemmas uh, on all sides of the political spectrum, Um, you mentioned in detail the story of how Grover Cleveland uh, approved the use of federal forces to stop uh, what looked like a very dangerous strike uh, at Chicago, the the major railhead uh, of the United States. Uh, But you mentioned in passing, and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on it, is that that he had proposed the concept of kind of a a mediation board uh, between uh, American workers and American management or American capitalist owners. Um, Did he ever do much to follow up on that? Uh, Or did he just sort of, okay, Congress needs to figure it out?
1: yeah more more the latter. Uh, Cleveland in his this is a little different in his second term than his first term. The second term is when the Pullman strike which you're describing occurred, but Cleveland does have a what to us seems a very old-fashioned and kind of passive conception of the presidency. He took the verb preside very seriously in in presidency. Um you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of deference to Congress. There was a lot of the idea that well, I'm just here to make sure that Everything's running okay. I'm operating as an executive. I'm not going to be the driving force behind a lot of public policy. So it it fell stillborn, this proposal. But it is interesting nevertheless in that Cleveland, to the extent that he gets invoked these days, happens a little bit more because of the potential Donald Trump parallels, but still not much. You hear Cleveland referred to as kind of a union buster a lot of the time. Part of it's because of the use of federal force in the Pullman strike. Federal troops were sent into Chicago over the objections of the governor of Illinois, a fellow Democrat. And there's a story that circulates every year at Labor Day. Drives me a little crazy. And it's addressed in the book that uh, Labor Day was made a federal holiday at this time as kind of an empty gesture to unions in the face of everything else that was being done to them. This is not really true. I mean, it is true that Labor Day was codified at that point as a federal holiday, but it had been celebrated in a lot of the states up to this point. It had been winding its way through Congress long before the Pullman strike. So the idea that it was this kind of hollow gesture from the Cleveland administration was totally misbegotten and a, and a little historically illiterate. But even in this day, as Cleveland, I mean, we should put this in context that. Cleveland has this old-fashioned kind of classical liberal conception of what being a Democrat is at a time when the sort of populist wing of the Democratic Party, best represented at least in our historical memory by the likes of William Jennings Bryan, uh, is ascendant. This actually causes a schism within the Democratic Party, right, in that the Bryanite wing looks at what happens with the Pullman strike and says, well, this is Grover Cleveland, handmaiden of American capital, betraying organized labor. You can make that argument. A lot of people do. Um, It's not the way that Grover Cleveland conceived of the issue. In fact, the federal government, the Cleveland administration, resisted calls to intervene in Chicago initially. And the reason that they ended up uh, reversing that decision was because the feeling was um, that What had happened in Chicago had such baleful consequences for the country. It's important to understand the scope of this. It wasn't just violence in Chicago. It was, since it was railhead, as you mentioned, it was shutting down commerce throughout the country. I mean, people were not getting food deliveries. The mail wasn't getting delivered. So Cleveland felt that his responsibility here was not intervening in a labor dispute. His responsibility was restoring order. So is Cleveland a, a labor union sympathist of the kind that we would think of today? No, um, it would be tough to make that argument. But the idea that he was in total alignment with sort of corporate America as against the interests of the working man and labor unions is, is just not reflected in the record we have of, of his life and his presidency.
0: You mentioned how he had a sort of passive attitude to Congress. Um And in your description, for instance, of when he tried to very earnestly push uh, a reform of tariffs, uh, which incidentally would have probably put him not as a big fan of big business because big business love tariffs, but he really comes off, he honestly kind of reminds me a little bit uh, of his ultimate success, democratic successor in the White House, Woodrow Wilson, in his worst moments when he was very good at publicly at, at making public appeals, at making rhetorical flourishes, but his personality was just not suited for compromising or working with his guys in Congress for for making deals. And why was it? What, what prevented him from being able to make those kinds of compromises?
1: I think that's an extremely fair characterization. Uh, you see a lot of this in Cleveland in general. There's just kind of this innate Stubbornness, more pronounced uh, in his second term. I mean, there's a a, an episode. I don't tie it too much to policy in the book, other than in passing. But you know, there's an episode in early in Cleveland's second term where he has a he has a cancer scare, and uh, is confronted with his own mortality. And according to the testimony of his aides, this did result in some temperamental changes, and him becoming a little bit more impatient. A little bit more combative. It's probably over-interpreting that to say that that was the root cause of what was happening there, because we have decades worth of Grover Cleveland being stubborn prior to this. But you're you're quite right. Uh, you're quite right, and you really see this on this tariff fight. So the, the context for this is that Cleveland had pushed for tariff for four minutes first term. In fact, had built his first reelection campaign for the presidency around it, somewhat politically foolishly, because he just didn't have the votes. It comes back up again in his second term, and the way that this plays out, I mean, Cleveland ran up against the hard realities of American politics, which is that he wanted to reduce tariff rates. He ultimately got a bill that did reduce tariff rates, didn't reduce them the way that he wanted them reduced, didn't reduce them to the level that he wanted them reduced, because there was just mountains and mountains of horse trading involved, as you would expect with legislation where this many business interests have you know, vested interest tied into it. Everybody got a little bit of what they wanted. He threatens at one point to veto it, his own his own bill, practically. I mean, the thing that was kind of the, the signature issue of his second term, or at least he intended to be the signature issue of his second term. And in the end, he lets it pass into law without signing it and, and denounces his fellow Democrats. Uh, this just seems, this is an innate part of his personality, right? There is this stubbornness and this sort of cleaving to first principle. But this is a good example of uh, Cleveland, like a lot of us, frankly, and politics are out, his best virtues are also often his worst vices. And what I mean by that is, He gets elevated to high office because of this sense of integrity, the sense of principle. But he sometimes can't get out of his own way because of the exact same instincts. A more practical politician here probably takes absorbs the part of it that's a loss, but dresses up the part of it that's a win, is able to say, look, the party came together on this. I didn't get everything I wanted, but I got a lot. And Cleveland leaves this issue behind with sort of a bitter taste in his mouth and is complaining about this for the rest of his life. So I think you're quite right. I, I, there's a lot of sort of later stage Woodrow Wilson in there the just inability to get out of your own way because of this kind of high handedness and this feeling that, that you know better. Um, it's the root cause of you know, his reputation for integrity, but it's also the root cause of him not always being a great party leader.
0: Speaking of, uh, I, I think that's a good summary of his approach. I wanted to bring up another question, which I was actually originally going to ask the question in an entirely different way, but something just occurred to me. Uh, You mentioned, and rightly so, that when he was president in both of his terms, uh, Cleveland had a very, very moral approach to foreign policy in the broadest sense, both foreign, both policy in dealing with Native Americans in the continental United States and foreign policy in dealing, for instance, in the illegal uh, coup d'etat that happened in Hawaii, which he absolutely abhorred. Um, It strikes me that maybe in modified versions, That's an approach, I think, that was actually a lasting legacy of his, because William Jennings Bryan famously ran, uh, among other things, on anti-imperialism. Woodrow Wilson's uh, vision of the post-World War I world, for better or worse, we can, you know, that's a subject probably for a whole uh, seminar, uh, also saw things in very moral terms. And even FDR, Uh, also envisioned it so would it perhaps be be possibly said even though he himself was only able to put his finger in the dike uh, in terms of the american expansionist tendencies perhaps uh, that's one of the things he left to american uh, foreign policy
1: yeah i think that's fair he he never gets credit for it partially because he doesn't have well partially because the stakes are higher for wilson right than they are for cleveland at, at least in historical retrospect but also cleveland lacks something that Wilson has, which leaves Wilson more attached to this legacy than Cleveland, which is to say that for all of his high handedness around these things, Cleveland still is sort of fundamentally a a modest person, even though he seems a little imperious in his dealings with Congress and other politicians, which is to say he does not conceive of himself as a visionary in the way that Wilson does. And he doesn't sort of perfume himself in the kind of visionary language that Wilson tended to, even though there are plenty of excerpts from these incidents you're talking about where you can really see the genealogy of this sort of view of of foreign policy. And I'm really struck, I mean, there's a whole chapter in the book dedicated to the situation in Hawaii. I think when you read the details of what happened there, uh, it's actually hard in that case to think that Cleveland was on the wrong side of that and he it's one of the most eloquent moments in his presidency when he is objecting to the american intervention in hawaii that said i mean to your point we just have to sort of face the hard realities of this there is the moral case and then there's the practical case and i don't mean for any of what i'm about to say to be misinterpreted as an endorsement of what happened in hawaii i think cleveland was right and it was wrong that said it was an island outpost in the middle of the Pacific at a time when you are seeing countries throughout the world because of changes in technology, changes in commerce, expanding their global footprint, it, it is hard to imagine a situation where those islands remain independent in perpetuity. And this is part of sort of the McKinley administration's rationale for this when they eventually annex them a, a few years later is, look, we're, we're in this war that parts of which are taking place in the Pacific, We this is a strategic uh, piece of real estate that we have to have. And it may be ugly, but it's sort of a, a fait accompli. I'm not saying that's the right rationale. Um, I don't think it is. But what's remarkable when you look at, at Cleveland's understanding of the issue, what Cleveland says and writes about, he never even factors this in. I mean, there, there's very little discussion about the sort of practicalities of this. And this is where they sort of go wrong on trying to resolve The Hawaii situation is Cleveland and and other members of his cabinet are thinking about it purely in moralistic terms, and it falls to other members of the cabinet to say, Well, guys, there's already been a coup. So if you want to restore the, the monarch, how are we going to do this? And the idea that you would get that far down the road before anybody even raises that, I think shows you some of these strategic shortcomings of thinking only in those moral terms. You want those moral terms to be a part of the conversation, but they always have to be filtered through, okay, what are the strategic and practical realities that we have to deal with on the ground? And that, again, is is a bit of a blind spot for Cleveland when we're talking about foreign policy.
0: Fair enough. Very much fair enough. Um, If I may perhaps end with a bit of a puzzlement, you mention in the book that Cleveland was praised by as a cerbic, a social and political critic as H.L. Mencken and even given very high marks by a major and quite popular historian such as Arthur Schlesinger. Why exactly did his name go by the wayside? Why did it disappear. I don't think I really accept the argument that it's because the Democratic Party became more progressive and more pro-state, because even when they did that, they nevertheless continued to pay homage to their Jeffersonian and Jacksonian roots. So what happened?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I I would not accept that either. I I think that only affects... Who remembers Grover Cleveland? Right, he doesn't really fit into the Democratic Party's modern story of itself. So, if you're if you're a present day Democrat, there's not a lot of reasons to glom onto him. Which is why, as I say, I think he's more popular amongst certain stripes of conservatives and libertarians. It's a good question. Um, I'll offer two factors, which I don't think are comprehensive, but I think go a lot of the way. Uh, one, and this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book beyond just my interest in, in Cleveland as a president is that the issues of his age are almost entirely lost to modern Americans. I find it very interesting that when you look at sort of the, the educated layperson's understanding of American history, there are eras prior to this one that are much more intelligible to us. If we're talking about the Civil War or the fights around the Civil War, around slavery, those are clearly and easily intelligible to a modern audience. Same thing with the founding era and the revolution. The Gilded Age, I mean, if you, if you look at Grover Cleveland's presidencies, what are we talking about? We're talking about the gold standard. We're talking about fights over tariffs and civil service reform, and military pensions. We don't have analogies for most of these things in modern America. Part of what I try to do in the book is draw analogies so people understand why they're important. I mean, for most of us, this is certainly the case for me. You're in high school and you get the two days in American history that are dedicated to this era. You just sit there and think, why on earth was every fight about tariffs and civil service reform? So I think it's hard to understand his legacy unless you put in the sort of legwork to understand what the stakes were in the late 19th century. That's point one. Point two is Cleveland made it hard on himself, by, by which I mean this was not a guy who was naturally inclined to think about what we would now call presidential legacy, a term that in his era, even to people maybe a little more egocentric than Grover Cleveland, wouldn't make a ton of sense. It wasn't conceived of in the same way then as it is now. But he didn't leave us with much. As I say, you know, his papers are very helpful in writing a book like mine, insofar as he is walking you through the policy parts and the sort of day in and day out of what's happening in the White House, but he's not taking you behind any closed doors. He's not really telling you what he's thinking and he never did this in his retirement. The only thing he ever did was a series of lectures that he gave at Princeton where he was a trustee in his retirement, and they're not very good. They're not very interesting because, again, it's a sort of lawyerly recitation of the facts. It's not uh, careful balancing of pros and cons. He's not not giving you sort of the decision-making process. He's giving you the paperwork, in essence, and he never wrote a memoir. So uh, those are things that uh, don't tend to affect presidents as much in the immediate aftermath of their presidency. Things like the Schlesinger poll that you referred to, that was still within about 40 years of his death. So there was still a, a reasonable contingent of people who either remembered the Cleveland administration or were the kids of people who remembered the Cleveland administration probably at least heard the name of the dinner table once. But that only lives with the sort of living memory of a presidency. And the further you get away from it, if you, if you don't tend to those kind of things that can sort of keep a legacy alive, and you didn't live uh, through a, an incredibly dramatic sort of inflection point in American history, if it wasn't a, a major war or a major financial crisis, although Cleveland had that, you, you just tend to, you tend to lose the legacy a little bit. If a president doesn't take at least some care to cultivate it, and Grover Cleveland didn't.
0: Okay. I think that that's a, a very good summary. And uh, I, it has really been my pleasure to uh, cover all these bases, which are very, continue to fascinate me, even though it continues to be uh, hard to explain why these things, as you say, are important or should be comprehensible to the average American. Uh, Troy Sinek, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you. It's my delight.